Some of you might be familiar with the John Mayer tune, Say What You Need to Say. There's a lot of like church, churchy videos floating around where people are holding up signs and saying what they need to say. Um, I couldn't find one that would, that would fit us, and I also don't th know if we quite have the video capabilities to do such at this point, but it's okay. So just envision with me, if you will, John Mayer singing, Say what you need to say, say what you need to say. Okay, are we all there? We're all, all on board? Um, I want to try to use this as an entryway into looking at the text from Isaiah this week um, because I think that there's a lot of things that we want to say that we don't say. Married people, this might ring a bell. For some people, this is the enemy. What should this look like? It should be rolled up from the bottom up so you can get every spare ounce of toothpaste that there is. When I was, you know, 16, 17, sitting in those seats and seeing the pastor talk about the tubes of toothpaste and how married couples would fight over tubes of toothpaste, I thought that they were ridiculous. What's that? What's that? You don't roll it up. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, but, and that, that demonstrates the point. I might not roll it up either, but silently on the inside, there might be things that I want to say to Kate that I'm not verbalizing. Sometimes, as a married couple... The hardest conversations that we've had begin with this phrase, I need to tell you something. And that can be followed by something as significant as, we need to communicate more, I haven't shown you that I love you, I've been completely absent from your life because of work, school, commitments, those sorts of things. Or it could be something as small as, the way that you fold my t-shirts really annoy me. You know, that was a battle, uh, but we've, we've weathered the storm. But perhaps, I mean, for every, for every couple, there's like, there's different things uh, that you might feel comfortable talking about or you might not feel comfortable talking about. Um, in this particular text, we see Israel saying some things, but also not saying some things. So this is the introduction. We've talked about this text before. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27, uh, it says, Why do you say, Jacob, and declare Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my God ignores my predicament, my right, my mishpat, that word we looked at last week, my justice, my, um, my rights, more or less. Here, this is God saying to Israel, quoting back the things that they've been saying, maybe to each other, about God and how he has potentially forsaken them in this moment. Remember, the background to this is exile, the background to this is people being removed from their land, being absent from this relationship that they thought they had with God. Their identity is confused. Their uh, relationship is confused. Lots of things in their life are confusing for them at this time. And God is taking this phrase and saying, actually, I do care about your mishpat, your justice, your rights. Because he keeps going on after this text and talking about justice. Even last week, we were looking at the, the servant song and how that servant would be there to establish justice. It wasn't something that God forgot about in this moment, but it, um, for the people that were suffering, whatever it was that they were suffering, they struggled to, to find God in that. Uh, they would also verbalize things in this situation like this. This is from Psalm 44. It says, But now you've rejected and humiliated us. You no longer accompany our armies. You make us retreat from the enemy. Our adversaries plunder us. You've handed us over like sheep for butchering. You've scattered us among the nations. You've sold your people for nothing, not even bothering to set a decent price. This is the people of Israel in covenant relationship with God, talking about how God, in their mind, has not lived up to his end of the bargain. 
so much so that they say, you've handed us over like sheep for butchering. This is a completely foreign um, context for these people, and they're trying to figure out how it now all fits together. In their mind, God doesn't care, he didn't listen, and he didn't look or acknowledge their suffering. This is something that's, that's prevalent throughout the text. Um, in Exodus, early on, it says, God saw his people and he knew. He acknowledged. He sees them in the midst of suffering and he knows them. So here, this is Israel saying, God, you didn't see us. You didn't look upon us. You haven't acknowledged us. We're completely forsaken and here we are um, and we have no idea what it is that we're doing. So here's the question I want to pose to you today, and I don't think this is a complete misreading of the text here, but are there moments when we either say or want to say similar things? You don't care. You haven't seen me. You don't acknowledge me. You haven't heard the things that I'm saying to you. Are there moments in our life when that is our cry, when we can dip into the Psalms and say, you've handed us over like sheep for butchering? And is it also in those moments when you don't take the advice of the sage philosopher of our time, John Mayer, in saying what you need to say? Is that just something that you absorb and you don't let that uh, be uttered? Why is it that you think these things are left unvoiced in the church? Because I'm going to go ahead and presuppose that each and every one of you has a story and each and every one of you has hurts and baggage and uh, bitterness and resentment and all those things, um, whether it be against the church in particular or against... God for things that you think that he has done or against the people in the pews that have mistreated you. Um, There's been some statistics recently that talk about why people are leaving the church. It seems as though people ages 18 through 29, which makes up a big chunk of our demographic here, are leaving the church in droves. And some of them are saying things like this. 38% of them are claiming to have experienced a time where they significantly doubted their faith. And then on top of that, 36% would agree with the statement, I don't feel that I can ask my most pressing life questions in the church. It seems as though the church is not a forum in which people can verbalize the very deep-seated issues that they have, whether it's against um, God or just how to manage life and how to do relationships and how to have friendships and the baggage that we carry with relationships with our parents or siblings or who knows, the experiences that we've been through, whether they be death or divorce or tragedies of some form or fashion, we don't feel as though we can bring those to the table because in this room, at least, you have to come in with a smile and a mask and you have to do the game that we all think that we have to do. When that happens, we don't give voice to the doubts and to the issues and to all of the, the things that that we have going on. Now, I also understand that this is only, you know, two out of five people, and this is ages 18 through 29, so maybe some of you have weathered storms. You're coming out on the other side, and you're saying, I'm not there anymore, to which I say, great. Are you even able to utter the things that you think about God, the praises that you have about who he is and what he's done for you? Are you able to utter those things, or are those um, the statements that you keep buried in your hearts and minds? It seems as though there's a communication breakdown in this place and in churches in general where we don't talk honestly. I've told you guys this a hundred times, and some of you know this firsthand because you've been my students, but as a high school teacher, the one thing that I long for my students to get is honesty. For me, it's just as much of a win, and this is going to sound kind of stupid, 
for them to look me in the face and say, Mr. James, I just don't buy it, and here's why. Then pretending, wearing the mask, going to chapel, closing their eyes, worship, raising their hands, doing all the things that they think that they want us to do, and not ever being honest with where they're at with regard to Jesus. I wish also that the church was a place where we could be honest about um, past hurts and bitterness or just the doubts that we have, the things that we can't necessarily accept. But it seems as though there's things that aren't being said in this place. So the question then becomes, what is going on under the surface? And here I'm talking about under the surface of you as individuals, me as an individual, us as a corporate body. Like what's going on underneath the surface below the masks that we wear or the, the cliche phrases that, that we say? Um, and again, for some of you, this isn't where you're at. And I think that's awesome. If you've gone through those things and you understand who Jesus is and you're trying to make do, then set the example for us where you can be honest and open about how to do life in, in the midst of that. So it seems like what's being left unsaid a lot of times in the church and just in Christianity in general is doubts, questions, anger, bitterness, resentment, all these things that just kind of sit there and grow and grow and grow and grow until finally you snap and you just walk away. Those are the things that might not be receiving a voice. For some of you, I'll just go ahead and say it, it might be so deep-seated that it doesn't even seem like it's an issue. Oh yeah, well my dad left, you know, 15, 20 years ago, but I'm fine now. Oh yeah, this person said that about me, and yeah, it hurt then, but I'm okay now. Um, even just the the daily struggles of sickness and health issues and those sorts of things, we've kind of pushed them down so far that they're not issues anymore. We haven't necessarily really dealt with them because we don't feel that we have a situation or a forum in which to do so. Um, that's sort of painful. Here's the review, and this is how we're going to tie this in. Last week we talked about the servant songs, which is uh, what I just told you about. And here in this first bit in Isaiah 42, God is claiming that he has chosen Israel to do a specific task and he's claiming that by getting very personal, saying, you know that you're in the midst of exile, you've been removed from the land, but hear these things I want to say about you. You're my servant. You're my chosen. You bring me delight. I put my spirit upon him or them, as if we're going to look at it as Israel, and he's going to bring justice to the nations. He won't cry out, and remember that verb there is something about having this painful experience. It's very potential um, Potentially the case that this servant will go through pain and suffering uh, and difficulty. God continues, I, the Lord, have called you for a good reason. I will grasp your hand and guard you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to lead the prisoners from prison and those who sit in darkness from dungeons. So here it's like this idea of restoration. The servant will go about instilling God's justice on earth and you'll see that physically, tangibly, Right in your face, it won't just be spiritual, individual, kind of altar call sort of moments. It will be restoration where blind see captives are released. So we have this um, issue here where it might be the case that we've jumped too quickly to seeing Jesus in this text and not seeing Israel as a servant with a job to do, where they're supposed to be the ones who are bringing about justice. Um, but here, even if we understand that Israel is a servant, there's a huge problem with this. Because if you look at the historical context of this, um, there's this problem underlying the surface where in chapter 40, it's coming, coming to 
to be discussed at this time in this text that we're going to look at today. And namely, that's this idea that Israel cannot fulfill this role. God has called them to do a task, but Israel, if you know the backstory, they are sinful, they are rebellious, they are obstinate, they are fickle, they are just not the people um, that, can live up, that can live up to this. In fact, Israel might not even want to be the servant And in fact, they might not believe that it's possible for them to be it. It's kind of like those scenarios in which um, that one person that you've been fighting for their approval your whole life tells you something. And you've heard the, the negativity so long that you can't even receive that. This morning, perfect example, um, Kate and I woke up. And I could tell that she wanted to tell me something. It's Father's Day, and for those of you that don't know, I mean, Kate's pregnant, so I'm going to be a father. And I told her early on, like, I don't want to celebrate Father's Day because I'm not really a father yet. Just pseudo-father. But I could tell this morning that she wanted to say something to me. Something like, this is what I'm guessing it was. It was pretty good in my mind. Like, I love you. You're a good person. I can't wait to have this child, and you can be a good dad. That's that's what I thought it was. Don't burst my bubble. Um, but I, I, I cut her off right before she could even say it because, and this was a, my quote to her, I can't take that kind of stuff. And this is from my wife. I think we all struggle sometimes, and I'm not trying to import my own junk onto you, but we struggle with affirmation, receiving it, allowing people to say, you're this, you can do great things, I'm going to use you, especially in a spiritual context where, where you struggle with the fact like God can use me, God's forgiven me, that doesn't make any sense at all. Didn't he see what I was up to the last week or two? I mean, I'm just not there. So we have these struggles and difficulties with affirmation, and I would imagine that Israel, A, they're ticked, because they've been booted out of the land. They don't have that relationship anymore. God hasn't made good on the promises that he's been promising them for years and years and years. But also, I think, when they begin to hold the mirror up, they can't accept it or think it's possible because they know who they are at the very core of their beings. So this is what's happening in Isaiah 42, um, and this is how the, the poet is addressing these things. It begins in verse 18. Hear, deaf ones... And blind ones, look and see. Who is blind if not my servant, and deaf like my messenger whom I send? Who is blind like the restored one, blind like the servant of the Lord? Most people think that underlying these verses here and underlying this text is an unspoken um, sentiment from Israel where they say, God, you are blind, you are deaf. You're completely uninvolved in what's going on. If you could see what was happening now, you would have done something about it. If you could hear the prayers that we have, you would have stepped in and changed things. And what God does is this really cool turn of phrase where he says, hear deaf ones. There's been a complaint against me that I'm deaf and I'm blind, but actually you are deaf and you are blind. This is pretty ominous at this point in time. Uh, The poet, he's very encouraging, you know, comfort my people, I will tend you like a little ewe lamb and hold you close to my chest. But here it's like, you're deaf, you're blind, you don't get it, okay? But hold on, it gets better. So he's, he's mixing in these terms of you're blind and you're deaf, but also keeping them tied to him by saying, you're my servant, you're my chosen one, you're the one that is gonna do this great works of justice, you're going to be um, fulfilling my my plans, okay? Um, 
So we continue on. Which of you will listen to this? Which uh, will pay attention and respond from now on? Who gave Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Wasn't it the Lord, the one we sinned against? So here, this question that's coming back is, who gave you up to be in exile? And the obvious answer is, God. This one is tough to swallow at times because when you just stay there and you camp out there, some people will take that into God becoming the author of all things bad. God becoming the author of every sort of calamity that you face, every sort of storm that you have to weather, every sort of um, difficulty that you go through, God being the author of that. I struggle with that personally, and this is me like detach what I'm about to say from the person who's supposed to know what they're talking about and just allow me to be the person who doesn't maybe know what they're talking about. The way that I kind of reckon this in my mind is um, there's things that happen here that God allows to happen, yes, but those things that sometimes happen cause him to weep and mourn and wait for the day when his son will return and bring about restoration. Some theologians and people that have these theological systems that are so so minute that they begin to say things like, oh, that rape that happened? Yeah, God planned that. Oh, that, that sickness that eventually took the life of this person? Yeah, God, pl- God planned that. I don't really want to get into the game of saying what God plans and what God doesn't plan. Um, but I hope at least that we can have this idea not of, not of God as someone who's detached from us so much so that it's okay with him if, if people get raped and people die and people go through these, these ridiculous predicaments. I would rather think about God looking over us, hearing what we're saying, acknowledging who we are, and weeping in the midst of difficulties. For some of you, that's not good enough because you want God to supernaturally step in and stop everything bad from ever happening. Um, but here in this text, I mean, we, we see that God is punishing Israel for what they've been doing, which is being sinful. So here he's saying, I'm not deaf. I'm not blind. You actually have been deaf and blind. I'm the one that has removed you from the land and, and, and punishing you, um, mainly because you're the ones that keep sinning against me. You're the ones that keep breaking the covenant. You're the ones that keep doing whatever it is that you want to do. The whole beginning of Isaiah, those first 39 chapters, was get your act together, 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 and then they don't. Um, We oftentimes will focus in on a, a few verses to see the destruction and say, God is so temperamental and he's so like, quick-tempered, but we forget all these years and years and years of God being slow to anger, patient, waiting for his people to turn that corner. Um, And oftentimes in the text, they don't. And oftentimes in our lives, we don't. But here what we have is um, God talking about his servant, referring to them as the the deaf ones and the blind ones that have sinned against him. So it seems as though the end of this text is not going to be good. What goes on underneath the surface, namely Israel saying, God, you have been inattentive, you have been blind, you have been deaf, is brought to light in this text. Um, But the reality is Israel is the blind one and the deaf one and ultimately the ones at fault. So this 
unspoken bitterness against God that Israel has has been brought to light and has actually been turned on its head where it says, I'm not the one that's at fault here. You need to look at yourself in the mirror. Isaiah 43. This is setting the, the, the text here is, it seems as though everything that Israel is about to get um, and has received in the past is due judgment for all of their sins. It seems as though what's happening is not going to be good. Remember, throughout Isaiah in these first few chapters, it's been courtroom scenes where Israel or God is trying to give testimony. And in these last few verses, it's been that. It's been a courtroom scene. And if you're in court and these are the things that are being said about you, you're deaf, you're blind, you're sinful, you're the ones at fault here, the verdict, you can't anticipate it, is not going to be a good one. But there's an amazing turn uh, as we jump into Isaiah 43. It says, but now. Some people, when they look at New Testament texts, would say like these are the, the two greatest verses in all of the Bible because it, it's like a gospel turn. But now, says the Lord, the one who created you, Jacob, the one who formed you, Israel, don't fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. That text there is even in the midst of your sinfulness, even in the midst of you being rebellious and obstinate and whatever else, I am with you. I am for you. You have nothing to fear. I have redeemed you. That's like a, a family obligation. This idea of redeeming isn't just you go redeem somebody. It's like your family members are fighting for you and redeeming you. There's a relationship that has to happen in order for that to take place. I have called you by name and you are mine. It's like this is the ultimate affirmation again and again and again. Israel keeps hearing, I've called you by name. I know who you are. Um, and as some pastors would throw in, I know how many hairs are on your head. Like I know the things about you that make you tick. In fact, I've created you that way. You are mine. For the person sitting by the rivers of Babylon, again, these might be things that you have difficulty hearing. For you and I, they might be things that we have difficulty hearing. To imagine God saying to me, Josh, you are mine. I have redeemed you. I have a job for you to do. I have um, entered into this like familial relationship with you. I've called you by name. I know who you are. One of the greatest things ever is when people that you think are really cool call you by name. <laughs> yes, I'm 31 years old. Yes, I still believe that to be true. It's like the people that, that you really look up to when they know who you are. And sometimes there's those cool moments when you haven't even introduced yourself to that person and they know who you are. You know what I mean? Nobody? <laughs> Maybe? Okay. Um, those moments are like affirming you because it goes beyond just, I know this person and they do this work, or I know this person because they go to this school or that school. It's, I know you. You are mine. He goes on, uh, when you pass through the waters, and some people would see this as a reference to Exodus. Some people would see this as Christians. We read this as like baptism. Some people would see this as like some sort of trial. Um, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When through the rivers, um, they won't sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you won't be scorched and flame won't burn you. Wherever you go, I go with you, my dear. Yesterday I was at uh, Evo. This is like a side conversation for me and Kate, I guess. You guys can feel free to jump in. But there was a wedding going on and the guy was talking about, um, there was a really nice E.E. E. Cummings poem. So I said, oh, I hold you, my darling, I hold you in my heart like that one. Kate and I thought about getting tattoos, sweet matching <laughs> tattoos <laughs> with E.E. E. Cummings lyrics like over our 
hearts. Say, I, wherever you go, I go with you, my sweet. That sounds a little bit too romantic, I think, but there's a commitment there that even in the midst of exile, God is, is present with them. Because this is why. You are precious in my eyes. You are honored, and I love you. This is the one who created you, who formed you, says, you are precious to me. Beyond that, you are honored, and I love you. The men in the room might be reticent to hear that um, God loving us because we're men. And we want to be respected. <laughs> we don't want to be loved. I mean, Sometimes that's, that's part of the difficulty in receiving this affirmation. But here, God is saying, regardless of what you're going through, where you are in life, the fact that you're not in Israel, the fact that there's this relationship that's been fractured, I honor you, I love you, I'm with you. That's ridiculous. Especially in the midst of what's gone on in the courtroom before that, where God is the one saying, they're deaf, they're blind, they're rebellious, they've sinned against me, but I honor them and I love them, and I will go wherever they go, and I will protect them. This verse is really cool. Um, I'll start in verse 5. Don't fear, I am with you. From the east I'll bring your children, from the west I'll gather you. I'll say to the north, give them back, and to the south, don't detain them. Bring my sons from far away, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I created for my glory, whom I have formed and made, bring them to me is the sense of it. But here this idea of bring my sons and my daughters, this is the only text where it talks about God's daughters. Um, explicitly. It's always under the service. But here it's embedded in the midst of a patriarchal Old Testament text where the poet is saying, God wants to bring his sons and his daughters from the corners of the earth to come back to him. Why? Because they're precious, he honors them, and he loves them. This is the gospel. We haven't talked about Jesus, but this is good news because Israel should have gotten this one thing, but instead it turns, and the poet says, but now... I have chosen you, I love you, I'm with you wherever you go, I go with you, my sweet. Um, you're precious, you're honored, I love you. What Israel deserves, it didn't receive, because, again, you are precious in my eyes, you are honored, and I love you. And here, this is where it gets interesting. There's another turn, so here what we've seen is, the courtroom scene, Israel is guilty, and they should be punished, and they have been punished to some degree. But God comes back and says, I will go where you go, I will fight for you, I will protect you, I honor you, I cherish you, I love you. But now there's another turn. Bring out the blind people who have eyes, the deaf ones who have ears. All the nations are gathered together and the peoples are assembled. It's another courtroom scene where God is calling witnesses. Which of them announced this? Who predicted to us the past events? Let them bring their witnesses as a defense. Let them hear and say, it's true. Verse 10, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, to my servant, the one that I choose, so that you would know and believe me and understand that I am the one. Israel, 
did not probably have this mindset that God cared about them at all because of their predicament. God comes back and says, you're precious, I honor you, I love you. And then on top of that, in the courtroom, he wants the blind and the deaf to be the witnesses. In a court of law, stay with me, the best witnesses probably would not be the deaf and the blind. Follow me? But here God is saying, that's who I want, and I want them to be witnesses so that they understand, so that they know who I am, so that they can finally understand and believe that I am the one. I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and I am God. The Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, says, For your sake I have sent an army to Babylon and brought down all the bars, turning the Chaldeans, singing into a lament. I, the Lord, I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. Um, it just keeps on this, this lavish language of, I am the one and only. God, in this text, has called the blind and the deaf, the obstinate and the rebellious, the jealous and the proud. He's called the undeserving. He has called them to bring justice, to be a light to the nations, and to be his witnesses. In a very similar way, God has called us to be his witnesses. When I wrote this, I didn't think of it at the time, but a few hours later I was thinking about Acts chapter 1 says, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth and all that. Once we have understood who Jesus is, once we have understood that we are very similar to rebellious, deaf, blind Israel in need of something, once we have understood that the death and the resurrection of Jesus is that final act of God saying, I honor you, I cherish you, I love you, I will walk with you through water and fire so much so that I've given my son to actually walk through water and fire and the cross to redeem you. And in the same way that Old Testament Israel is this motley crew of people that don't really deserve to be doing much, God says, you will be my witnesses. He calls us to bring justice, to be a light to the nations, and to be his witnesses. I hope two things. One, I hope that we also have understood and believed and have had confirmation that God is who he says he is, even in the midst of the lowest of lows, even in the midst of those exile moments that we cannot quantify, that I cannot explain away, that I cannot help with a lot of times, that we can't verbalize the things and the depths of pain that we feel and experience. I hope that in some way God has broke through those things, broke through those moments of not saying whatever it is that you're feeling, the doubts, the bitterness, the resentment, to let you finally see and understand and believe that he cherishes you, that he honors you, and that he loves you. That's the one side. I hope that personally you have experienced that. I hope, um, as much as we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus, I hope that there's this acceptance and commitment to the gospel that is changing your life, then, now, and tomorrow. 
where you can see it, you can feel it, you can experience it. I understand that that's very um, romantic in the sense that it doesn't quite happen all the time, uh, but I hope there's little flag, flags in the ground moments where you can say, yeah, it's real, yes, it's real. And you can look back and see his hand on these things and you can accept the fact that he cherishes you and honors you. Second, once you've gotten there, I hope that we understand and we can hear this affirmation from God that says, you are cherished, you are honored, you are loved. I want you to bring about justice to the nations. I want you to go and be a light to the Gentiles. I want you to be witnesses for me at work, at home, in your relationships, in the supermarket, wherever you are. I want you to be an ambassador of me. What does that look like? Don't know. I would imagine it looks different for each and every one of you because we've been created differently with different passions, desires, conversations, friends, all these different things. But I would hope that that's a real desire and passion in your life to be a witness. Even though we're deaf and we're blind and we're not the people that you might think God should use, could use, or would use. He honors you. He cherishes you. He loves you.